Hello, I'm Marcus Railton, and this is the Scots Care Podcast. Scots Care is the only charity dedicated to helping disadvantaged Scots in London through a range of support, including mental health therapy, financial grants, advocacy, sheltered housing for older Scots, job coaching, social events, befriending, and support for children and families. The charity has been running for 400 years to help break the cycle of poverty experienced by some Scots in London. In this series of the Scots Care podcast, I'll be chatting to celebrities and supporters of the charity that have forged a life often away from Scotland and about the ups and downs that can bring. My guest on the podcast today is a man for all seasons. He's Colin McLachlan, a former SAS soldier who has seen combat in some of the toughest parts of the world. Since leaving the military, he has become a worldwide motivational speaker, star of Channel 4's SES reality drama, Who Dares Wins, and his autobiography has already sold over 10,000 copies on pre-order sales. Scott's Care. Hi, Colin. Good morning. Thanks for joining us on the Scott's Care podcast. I really appreciate it. Not at all. Absolute pleasure. When I was doing research on you, in a number of different places, it says the granite-faced Scot. And you're actually a very handsome man. I'm not sure that does you a fair justice. And no, I'd, I'd, I'd agree with the granite face. I think a lot of people think I have that uh, typical Scottish scowl, uh, you know, the eyebrows and the top, the, the, the sort of top of my head. So, no, I, I prefer rough and rugged than, than handsome. I'm, I'm definitely not a pretty boy. Oh, maybe it's the weather we've all had to endure most of our life. Because I'm sure I can, I can look at people and go, they're Scottish. I can tell they're Scottish. Yeah, it's funny. Some people have like a, a Scottish look about them. Um, and you can almost tell there's going to be a, a Scottish accent coming just from yeah. looking at the face. Where did you grow up? Did you have an average childhood? Um, so I, I grew up, uh, you probably wouldn't know the area, but it was around... Ockham Gray, Wilfords, Tarbrax, um, the nearest place would probably be Carnwath. Um, Is that East Coast? Uh, no, it's kind of it's kind of just on the the, the borders of of Lanarkshire. And All right, uh, okay, yeah. Bigger, bigger would be would be the local high school. That's uh, that's where I went. So yeah, my childhood was um, it, it was kind of. It was probably troubled would be the a sort of roundabout way of putting it. There was a lot of uh, a lot of trauma going on there, a lot, a lot of bits and bobs, the children's panels, social workers, supervision orders. And I've kind of come full circle now where I sit on the children's panel now, which I think is probably a... I think it's always good to sit on the panel having been on the other side and knowing what's probably going through the mind of some of the young people that are sitting on the other side. And what age did did you go straight from school into the military at quite a young age then? Yeah, so I went through the kind of children's panel stuff from about twelve right through to about fifteen, just before I left, and I had to get special permission to join the army at fifteen. I think you had to be sixteen at the time to join the the army, but I had kind of um, different circumstances going on. So my mum wrote a letter to say that. Um, she was given permission for me to join the army at 15 and and that was it I joined the army and I hardly saw my my parents after that and when you when you joined up was it just a way out or did you at that point even at 15 did you have an end goal for 
what status you wanted to reach or what rank you wanted to reach? Or was this just the first part of your life where you weren't thinking about that very much? Yeah, I think, well, I never really wanted to join the army. Um, a lot of people did at that time, you know, and, and most most little boys like running about with guns and stuff. And their little uh, a little twig that was a that was that was a rifle. But no, for me, it was um, it was just an out. It was a way out of the house. And, I, you know, I was kind of I was offered, you know, you can be a, a doctor, a dentist or a lawyer. That was my mum's. Uh, that was my mother's choices for me at the time. And none of those really appealed. And you don't really know what you want to do as a 14, 15 year old kid. So I got dragged along to the careers office and that was the kind of the last option for me. And I remember sitting the tick test at those times that you did and I equaled the highest that they'd ever got at Bathgate careers office. And so the guy said, look, you can, you can join whatever you want. What's that? Remember, Colin, what's the, what's the tick test? I don't know what that is. It's like the little, uh, I don't know what they do now, but at the time they had a little screen and then you just, uh, you just ticked what you thought was the right answer on the, All right on the screen and then you were given a mark at the end so it was a mixture of stuff so I probably wasn't on it on the same level as any kind of um uh, traditional uh test it was probably a, a very broad standard of maths English puzzles grammar and you, you know you just had to, it was multiple choice and it was more about speed how quick you could get through them gave you the the higher mark and I've always been quite good at those, you know, kind of management consultancy type stuff, the sort of test you would sit for going for the, you know, the big four and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, I sat, this, I sat this tick test and I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. But I remember looking around the careers office and there's all these pictures of different people in the military. And there was this picture of um, it was a guy. He was in like a blue uh sort of short sleeve shirt and he was all tanned and he was hanging off this uh, radar dish in Hong Kong and I was like I'll be that guy and uh, the, I remember I remember the careers office guy going well that's that's the REF and it's a um, telecommunication systems analyst operator I still remember it now from a 15 year old kid and I thought that title sounds so grand and uh, I, I said I'll do that and he said, well, it's a, a year's waiting list and then two years training. And my mum said, nah, he's got to be out of the house by the time he's 16. <laughs> so I, I got signed up into the Royal Scots a week later. And how did it fit for you when you went in? Because sometimes, you know, my my son Noah, he's 13, he's in the cadets. And do you know what? I, I love him to death, but sometimes I think he likes playing toy soldiers. I don't think the, the reality of the situation really kicks in. You know, he... he he takes pride in his boots and he takes pride in his berry and he, he loves the routine, but I don't think he gets the reality of what it's about. And I just wonder when you joined at 15, did it fit for you or was there a culture shock thinking, shit, this is the real world? Yeah, there was definitely a culture shock. I, I was the youngest there. I was quite small. Um, I had to grow up quite quick. And then back in those days when you joined up in the, in the 80s, there was a lot of... Um, you know, it was, it was strict punishment. You know, you, you, you guys and people, they would just dish out the, the odd slap and the odd punch if you never got things right. Things have obviously changed now, and, and rightly so, but back then it was quite, it was quite harsh, um, some of the, when you went through training. But 
I think even even if you're in the cadets and you're growing up at that age, I think there's things you take from it. You don't necessarily have to be the model soldier or even have aspirations to join the military. I think some of the things that you learn, whether you're in the cadets or the scouts or you're part of an organization or the, you do the Duke of Edinburgh, I think there's other stuff that you get from it. So I always think there's there's always positives, you know, there's always things that you'll take away from that. And certainly, well, that, that was the saviour of me. If I, if I hadn't managed to join the army or get into the army, I'm not sure where my path would have led because I think once you go to home, um, your chances of success in life just statistically go down. So it was the kind of saving of me, but it's not for everybody. Now, when you join the army and you go in, and I presume you go into the infantry, is that right? Yeah. And so the, the gulf between where you ended up, you know, at, at, at the top as part of the SAS. So where, where along that line do you realise what you're capable of, that you can go the extra mile, that you can, you can be the best or the best version of you? It's a good question. I, I think probably the end of training. I think even though it was only a year, I think when I first walked in, I knew nothing about soldiering. I wasn't interested in soldiering. Um, uh, you know, I, I wasn't, I didn't even have a, a junior rank, you know, people were like junior corporals and sergeants and sergeant majors, I had no real aspiration. I finished as a junior private, I didn't, I didn't even get a lance corporal. But one of the, one of the sort of light bulb moments, I think, was at the very end of that year, you have a, you have a set of army tests and it goes towards being sort of a combat infantryman prize. So basically the best soldier, the best infantier. Now, I'm, I always found I was a kind of good all-rounder. So I wasn't the fittest. I wasn't the best shot. I wasn't the biggest. I wasn't the best at tactics. But I was probably top three in them all. Yeah. And so I found myself at the end of it in the finals of this combat infantryman. And then I got right down to the final two. And it was a guy called, uh, I think his name is Bannerman. He was a Gordon Highlander. And he was the kind of model soldier, you know, big unit, typical Highlander. And uh, he, was, um, he, he, was, he, was, he was like me. He was pretty good at, at most things. And I remember we were sort of neck and neck all the way through. And then we had, um, we had our final uh, assessment. And at this point, we're, we're both neck and neck. And we get given, their final task is to go along this um, route and take out the enemy. And we get we, we just get told, pick whatever route you want and off you go. And he went off and he went along the sort of ridge line. So he ran along the top and um, took out all the targets. You don't know what your final score is until the end. And I thought, well, that's that. He skylined himself. He's up on the high ground and mm -hmm. I'll just go through the river. And I'll pop up every now and again and take out the targets. And whenever there's water, water's always the right answer as an infantier, you know, get in the stream, get in the puddle. So it was, you know, so I, I just run up the stream, popping up, hitting the targets. And at the end, they added it up and we both hit the same amount. So it was like 20 out of 20 targets. So they said, well, we're going to base it on ground and we'll give it to Bannerman because he was in full view of the, he could see the targets the whole time. There was times when you were in the water, you couldn't see the target. And I remember at the time, he's, even as a 15-year-old kid, thinking, that's not right. Like, if, I, if this was war, I'd do exactly yeah. the same thing. But I just let it go. But I think it was the turning point in me because I thought I can compete. 
even though I'm smaller, I'm whatever, I can compete with people and I can be a good soldier regardless of what other people think. And that's kind of followed me throughout my life, not just for the military, but for other things. I face quite a lot of rejection. We maybe come on to it later in terms of finding jobs, getting into education and stuff like that, going for uh, TV jobs and stuff. And I think you get used to it and it doesn't affect you as much. I still get affected by things like being disappointed in people sometimes or things that aren't right. I've got this thing about trying to fix them. But I think that set me up nicely for a military career in terms of having the self-confidence that I could compete regardless of what other people's opinions were of me. It could be Sunday football or Monday piano lessons. Whatever a child wants to learn after school hours, Scots Care has grants to help cover costs. Parents can't always find the funds for those extracurricular pursuits, but there's a good chance Scots Care can. It's interesting. I get that when I think more and more I get disappointed in maybe not other people, but just the world. It's a difficult place at the moment. But do you feel you're in your 40s now? Do you feel comfortable in your own skin? Are you happy who you are these days? Yeah, I'm always guarded to have that sort of um, being happy. I'm, 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 always, I'm always pushing a little bit to try and improve myself and try and I've got, I've got a horrible habit of saying yes to maybe too many things. Yeah. And sometimes that gets you in bother. Sometimes you get, there's always something got to give, you know, and I think I could be probably smarter about some of that stuff. But I do think that if I never said yes, there would be that thing nagging away at the end, like you could have done that. But some some wise person once told me every now and again, even if you can do something, just say no. There's something behind that. There's something that gives you that autonomy and control back and you know it's good for you to say no but um, I, I do find it difficult even with all the training is is fear still healthy is that more likely to keep you alive rather than just smashing through yeah absolutely and I always sometimes I have to kind of put it in so when I do my talks and I talk about stuff sometimes I deliberately put in a slide that talks about fear and I say, no matter how many times you've been in combat, no matter how many times you stand up and speak publicly, no matter how many times you jump at an airplane, there's always an element of fear. And I would never want that to go away. I would never want to be fearless because we don't want fearless people and fearless people can be quite rash. I think, but sometimes that's kind of how I measure bravery in a way. It's not how fearless you are. It's actually how scared you are, but how willing you are to keep going forward and one of the things that all would help me go forward rather than backwards even though I wanted to I'm a human being was the consequences because there's consequences to go in this way and there's consequences to go in this way and the consequences to go in this way are quite short you'll normally find out in the next few seconds or minutes how that's going to go but if you go that way you can take those consequences with you for life so that sometimes helped me when I I've needed to be brave or, you know, I've, I've needed to, you know, try and overcome fear. But I've always had it. And I think it's quite healthy. And I think when you've got that element of might not even be fear, it might just be apprehension about things. It makes you do your due diligence. So if I'm going to speak publicly, I'll make sure that, you know, I've rehearsed. I know the time. I've done the slides. Mm. I've uh, aimed off for questions. You know, I'll rehearse it even no matter how many times I've done it so that, you know, I'm, I'm more confident myself. I'm more brave when I step out there because I've done everything I can. 
everything else is out of your control. Well, I suppose, yes, you're right. You prep what you can prep. But in a, in a military situation, you were taken hostage in Basra. I mean, that must have been terrifying just from a human point of view. Yeah, I, I think I think always the most terrifying thing about stuff is when you there's no control. I think when there's an element of control about things, there's an order. I think that's that actually is is better. I think once things become mob mentality, or there's this sense of um, no one's in control, anything can happen. You can just be sort of torn limb from limb. I think that's scarier. I think there's something not doesn't give you that warm fuzzy feeling but I think there's something better when there's an order and there's a, a process and I think that I, I always felt safer in those situations than when things just broke down because then you thought all bets are off anything can happen yes I get I do I understand that and when when I knew I was speaking to you I spoke to three guys I know all ex-military and I said oh I'm speaking to Colin McLaughlin there and they went oh yeah I know we know who you are the SES guy and I think in my ignorance, I said, what, what, should, what would you ask Colin? And I thought they'd say, oh, ask him about the SAS this or ask him about being in Sierra Leone or ask him about a certain combat situation. And all three guys came back separately and said, ask him about PTSD. Is that, is that can we talk about that? Because that's something you talk about yeah, quite a lot. And, and, and I think that's quite refreshing. And it tells you a story about, what the conversation needs to be nowadays. I think there's been, there's a lot of there's a lot of people that have been in the SES. We know more about it. There's more TV and books and stuff like that. And I think it's less about you know un unpicking the individual that was in the SES or some of the stories from the SES, and more about the sort of wider and bigger conversation about PTSD. And I have I have to admit myself, I'm I'm not I'm not an expert on it and I've had a lot of years working with various charities and experienced friends and come through stuff myself with it that um, I see that it's quite a big complex thing that it's not I think before when we thought it was black and white you know these days of shell shock and you either had it or you didn't and it was you know it was the same symptoms you got at the same time and it lasted for this long and this was how you fixed it I think We've come a long way since then, and we're probably not there yet. But I think we understand it better, and I think we we can we can probably do more to prevent it now. And I think that's the biggest thing for me. I think the biggest the biggest travesty is that we have all these combat stress, help for heroes, um, who dares cares. I, I think it would be better if the military took ownership of that and said, "Well, look, we're responsible for that." So we'll take ownership for it and know that when you sign this bit of paper up to and including your life, when you leave, whenever that is, we'll make sure you're okay. Uh, not, we're not going to give you a big flashy house and a big sports car and loads of money. We're just going to make sure you're okay. And I think that's not too much to ask for somebody who, in my opinion, and I'm probably biased, gives more to society than any other sector in, in, in the world, in our work force you know who, who goes away for that long who puts that much on the line who sacrifices their family and everything else so I think it's the least we deserve when when we come out is just to make sure that we're all right and do you think the military currently still falls short for a, a duty of care yeah massively and I can see why it's a it's a it's a big burden for them you know it's it's a lot of people that at any time could have any amount of issues that 
it's, it's quite complex and quite hard to get under the weeds of and make sure they're okay. And people can, you know, symptoms for PTSD can surface anything from immediately after the trauma till 12 years after, depending on your circumstances, what you're going through, triggers, all the rest of it. And so it's very hard to aim off for as and when it comes. It's also very hard to get the person the support they want if they're not willing to, 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 to put themselves forward for that. And that's one of the struggles we find with the, with the charities that we work with. For all the best intentions in the world, if that person doesn't want to help, if they're either in denial or they're like, I'll deal with it, but um, I can see why the easy answer is to pass it on to somebody else. Do you, do you think as a society, and especially the military, are we moving in the right direction? Is there less of a stigma attached to it? Because I suspect 20 or 30 years ago, it was probably seen as a bit of a sign of weakness and you wouldn't, as a soldier, probably admit to it. Yeah, I, th I think we've definitely moved on. I think we're not quite there yet. I think there's, um, I think if you, if, you if you had an employer and you had two people and one came up and, you know, he's kind of running the mill, another one was military, he might have be slightly better qualified, he might have more qualifications, he might have more experience, but there was issues of PTSD. I wonder how many would take that on. And obviously we have the Armed Forces Covenant and stuff, and we can argue about how effective that is, but it, we're slowly getting there. We're not quite there yet. And I think, I think had the army been there, had the military said, we've got this one-stop shop where anytime you can dip in and out, there'll be a local to you support network and when you leave the military you don't just hand in your id card and fall off the face of the earth but actually you still have ties with you know your veteran community because they're the best people to help you know you have to speak to someone that speaks the same language and has walked a mile in your shoes we find that's what helps best with not just veterans but with nhs fire service prison service blue light services you know, those people know what a bad day looks like, you know. And so that that's one of the things that helps best. And they're best placed to do it. You know, they have that network. They, they, they you know, they have access to all those veterans right across the, the UK. So the best, they're the best place people to help. It's just ironic that they, they don't. When you came back from the, the combat zones you were in, how important was your partner to you? Like, is it Amanda? I mean, she must have been... A shoulder to lean on and I just wonder how much how much better people with uh, service people with families do rather than a service person who's going home and then going into an empty flat I just wonder if would there have been darker days for you if you didn't have your support network around you in the shape of Amanda yeah I think for a lot of people their partners family friends will be the most important support network to them I, I met Amanda after I'd left the services I'm divorced and, um, it, you know, it's probably got a big, you know, part to play in that. And I would imagine there's a lot of broken relationships, divorces due to the way military life is, is structured and the demands that are, that are on it. But yeah, Amanda's, Amanda's always been um, very, very supportive and, and recognises sometimes when I'm at my lowest, because we all kind of go through frequencies where we're at our, our highest and lowest. We can't always operate 100% every day. And I think she's good at doing those things of, of, of picking you up when, when you're a bit down. So, but whether it whether it's a partner or a friend, I always think that buddy-buddy system that we kind of, 
we recognise in the military. I think you need that throughout life, and not just in the military. I think you need it in any any sector, anywhere you work. Like I say, you have to speak to somebody that speaks the same language and kind of knows what you're going through. But yeah, I think Amanda, and I think I think my kids as well. I think when I was at a real low point, I think Amanda, and I, I think recognising that your your children are there, and that that helps bring you back onto the um, back onto the path. Yeah, I, I get that. You know, not the same for me, obviously. I just, you know, run of the mill life. But sometimes when I am at a low ebb, you know, I've, I've, I've got a four year old daughter. She actually, she'll just come and she'll give you a cuddle and you think, oh, that's okay. That's that's what you need. You know, you just need a bit of that. Yeah. And you bring up a good point. And uh, we find that a lot of other things help as well. So you'll probably know about brave hounds with the dogs. Do- dogs are, are very good for that, you know, recognizing symptoms and emotions and being there at the right times. Horseback UK, you know, getting people uh, with horses and horses can tell emotions and sometimes just from you sitting on their back, which is uh, mad when you think about it. So there's lots of different things that the community is tapping into to help support support servicemen and women. And um, for the same reasons, those help where, where there isn't children, you know. One in four of us will experience a form of mental health illness in our lifetime. Scots Care offers mental health supports with quick access to qualified therapists for both children and adults, bypassing NHS waiting lists. If you're a low-income Scot in London and could use the help, get in touch with us. Can, I, can we talk about your autobiography? Because I, I like the title, The Pilgrim. What made you choose that word? I think there's a number of things. I think we're always associated with being the pilgrims, the SES. We have the famous, we are the pilgrims master poem by James Elroy Flecker on our clock tower in Hereford. There's always, you know, things about pilgrims, you know, the rugby team or the pilgrims were associated with charities like the pilgrim bandits. So, and I think for my own life as well, the journey I kind of went on where I went from, you know, being in real need of support as a young kid and, and not having a lot of strength in a lot of areas to have have that life of I wouldn't say suffering but I've, I've been faced with rejection and all, all the different challenges that come on life to be then in almost the best position to be able to offer support in different areas you know I sit in the children's panel I do charity stuff I, I, I try and do what I can that's almost the, the path less trodden it's almost the path a pilgrim takes and so it seemed quite befitting that if I was going to write an autobiography, that would be that would be the title. It's interesting you use that word suffering, because I think what comes across really strongly is that your path in life during the time in the forces was was never easy. It, you show so much resilience because so many times I think it would have been fine to say that's enough. That's I'm done. But you don't, you, you keep going. And I wonder what drives that resilience. Is it more than a sense of duty? Yeah, I think uh, it's funny. When COVID came along, I kind of reset all my, my goals I had. And I, I wrote a book on resilience. And um, it's just kind of waiting there for after the autobiography. The, the autobiography isn't actually released. You, you'll see on Amazon it's a bestseller. But that's only because... If it goes through so many pre-sales in a, in a month, it becomes a bestseller. So I think it had sold 10,000 copies before it was released. And so Amazon called it a bestseller. But mm-hmm. 
it literally just got the green light and that was variable EPO from the MOD last week. And it's still subject to the written official EPO once I give them the front cover of it. So it's been a long, painful process, part of the Pilgrim's voyage, but it's uh, probably taken the best part of uh, 10 years to get it officially signed off. And I think it could have been easier had I been willing to leave out lots of it, but I was prepared to stay in the fight. I was prepared to suffer. And so I was prepared to go back and forth as long as that war went on with it. To the point where the very last sign off before last week was one word. It needed to oh. have one word taken out. And I fought that for as long as I thought was appropriate. <laughs> and then um and and then um yeah, went went for went for the EPO. So you go through quite a difficult process now where because of things that have happened in the past, there's always more and more added on. So before the days of Andy McNabb, you could write whatever you liked. But because of Andy McNabb and Chris Ryan, they've brought an EPO. So you need to get written permission before you... before you. What does that stand for? Um, express prior authority in writing. Oh, so yeah. it basically means that... It doesn't mean that you won't be excluded because you still might be excluded from... You might be sort of frowned upon within the regiment. But it does mean that they're not going to chase you legally if you write the book because they've had sight of it. They've managed to edit the things that they think are, I'll put in loose terms, you know, security issues and, you know, national security. But some of it is ridiculous. So you can't put a wing dagger on because that's copyright. Now, there's nothing going to breach national security or risk lives if I put a wing dagger on my book. But because it's copyright, you can't. So that's one example. Another example would be places that you've operated in. So it's kind of well documented. I've been on television before saying I've operated in Iraq and Sierra Leone and all the rest of the places. But you can't say that in a book. So things like that can be frustrating, yeah. but um, they're, a, they're, a, they're, a, they're a necessary evil. So you either do what they say, get get what you need to do to get a book done and, you know, leave most of it out. Maybe just have two lines in there saying I joined the SES at this point and left at this point, which I think it's a big part of your life. And if it's had a big impact on what you do, I think it deserves to stay in there. So I've not taken the easy route. I've kind of fought to, to keep a few chapters in there about, about the regiment. And um, I, I'm, I feel better now that I did because there's something in there that was a big part of my life albeit some of the obvious stuff I've had to take out. But so literally uh, last week. And then now you, you don't get used to get EPOD just for the manuscript. So when you sent in your manuscript, they said that manuscript has EPOD. You can't change it. You can't add to it. You can't now put add things on. But that manuscript has got permission. Anything else will chase you legally. Now you've got to send in all your photographs and you've got to send in what the, the front and back cover will look like. Because in the past... People have said, oh, I won't put a wing dagger on. And then they put the front and back cover on, they put a wing dagger on it or whatever. And then, you know, it's too late because um, they've put it out. So it's quite a hard process now. Yeah. But yes, I'm, glad I, I'm glad I went through it because sometime in the coming months, um, the Pilgrim will, will be out and I'll be glad I, I fought that war. Can we go back to before the SAS and your time in Northern Ireland? Because I was thinking about this and, you, you know, being deployed in almost your own back garden there, is it more difficult, I was trying to think how to phrase this, is it more difficult when 
people are at the centre of the conflict, when it's not a faceless conflict, when it's people that you could be living next door to, when they just look and talk and sound the same as you? I always think um, I was I was glad for Ireland for what was to come after in terms of other conflicts, because I think once you put people at the centre of conflict, you've got the most important part of it right. And with all the greatest, you know, military tactics and weapon systems in the world, if you can't shift that mindset, it's very hard to win a war. And you see that with Ukraine, you've seen it in the past with Afghanistan. So I think Ireland was was useful for for me as starting out as a you know as, as a sort of raw green green army soldier and I think if you get that part right the people and the tactics and your basic infantry stuff the rest of the stuff you can build around it um, and that hearts and minds thing's always been really important because if you can get the hearts and minds part done it's a big part of the war whereas the alternatives almost you know, impossible to try and reach a, a solution if you've not got that part. It's interesting you talk about mindset and because I had wanted to ask you about change because this is something you do talk about and I, I've watched you talk about change because so many of us fear change and, you know, especially as we get older and I see it myself questioning whether I can do something, you know, fear creeping in. But then I look at the variety of what you've done since leaving the military, writing, public speaking, TV, what is it keeps you jumping off that cliff into into the unknown? Yeah, and and I think I, I think change is um, normal, and I think we have a we have a kind of built in inherent fear of change, and that's a safety thing. It's a normal thing. If we didn't have that, we should be worried. You know, if we we're just going to jump from one thing to the next without any sort of consideration, uh, we'd be quite you know it, it would be it would be quite a, a dangerous place to be but I think I've, I've gained confidence through doing different things and um, I, I think that that ability to at least try it and then say I can park that and at least the knowing's better at least the knowing that that's for me or it's not is better than the alternative of not knowing regardless of how it turns out and sometimes that's advice I give to friends. I gave, I gave a, a bit of advice to a friend just about a month ago who's faced with quite a big decision about to make a big move within the industry that they were in. And it, it, it was involved. I mean, it was a whole, it wasn't a total career shift, but it was a total different change of direction, up, up and moving totally different. And it had different things on the line. It was less safe, but there was more at play. And I said, well, you know what? I said, if you don't make this decision, and you just think, I just, I'm too, the, the, the making the decision is the risky bit and I don't want to do that. So I'll just leave it. I said, that little thing's always going to be on your shoulder going, hmm, wonder where you'd be right now if you'd done this. And what? And I said, sometimes the making the decision is the best, is, is the best part. Because at least then, you know, you know, the holding off on the decision and always I'll make it tomorrow, I'll make it next week, I'll make it next month is worse than the just making the decision. So Whatever you do, make the decision with it and make peace with it. Give yourself permission to spend time on it and then have peace with it. And I think I've always tried to do that. And not all the decisions I've made, even though I've said yes to a lot of things, have been the right ones. But I've been glad that I've tried them, you know, and some of the things have been fantastic, whether it was I'll give selection, I'll go, I'll, I'll write a book, I'll, I'll try this motion capture for video games. I'll see what that's about. 
I think trying new things um, will, will always, and it's natural. You, if you don't, you're going to get left behind. You're, they're, they're, that, that's definitely not the right answer is just to go, well, this is what I'm safe with. So I'll just stay here because the world moves and it's, it's moving ever quicker. And so we've just got to jump on and off when, when it suits us. I like, you mentioned motion capture there because I did read that you had done that. And for people who don't know, motion capture is about, it's about video games, isn't it? It's about how characters are tracked through the video games. How did you get into that? That seems a real left field opportunity. Yeah, and, and again, it's that path less trodden. You know, I, I don't know many others that are... Um, are in that field but it was um i was quite fortunate that when i, I think when i first left um the circuit i was doing the bodyguard and, and i'd applied to um get into universities and that was the kind of start of that failure rejection part that um i got a call from uh francesca howard who worked at um at rockstar games and she, and she said look are you interested in motion capture and I was like, yeah, absolutely. And she went, well, come in on Wednesday for an audition. And then I went and Googled what motion capture was. <laughs> and um, I remember going in for the audition and my very first audition, this will tell you how far back it was, was it was in the, the not long move from sort of Dundee that this uh, small place in, um, in Leith. And the motion capture studio, I mean, the, the area you could move was about the size of a small coffee table. Wow. And um, it was on the same floor as where, you know, all, all, all the wee nerdy guys were, were working away on character animation and designing sets and, you know, doing the codes and stuff like that. So there wasn't, it wasn't a separate area. And they said, right, Colin, we've got this um, scene where we're going to give you this uh, baseball bat and you've got to interrogate this person on a chair. They had like this life-size dummy strapped <laughs> into a chair interrogate it for exactly three minutes and increase the you know anger levels until at the end of it you just go you know mental and start like bashing it up and um i sort of royal i, I sort of set the emotion up until at the end of it i was smashing this chair and bits of the chair were flying about different corners of the room and i was like just this big like sweaty heaving mess and I thought, I've just messed this up. But I tell you what, that was three minutes of good anger management and fun. And um, they got a call back and they were like, that's brilliant. We're going to put that in the video game. And so that was about 12 years ago, I think. And so I've been doing it ever since. So games like Grand Theft Auto, 4 and 5, Red Dead Redemption, Max Payne, Ellie Noir, Hitman, Robin Hood. I've, I've done a lot of them and it's it's one of the most diverse and, big, big and global games you know worldwide games yeah yeah and i think gt5 if if my memory serves me right was the highest selling entertainment product of all time wow. so all movies all to toys all video games everything um it was it was manic so i think to be part of of that and have your credits on there and you know remembering some of the scenes i think that's uh yeah it's just an, another thing i'm proud of but it just started with a, a sort of can-do attitude you know I'll, I'll give it a go and um yeah it's led to it's led to, to bigger things do you have a faith are you a spiritual person and the reason i ask is i wonder what a person like yourself is you've seen so much of the world you've seen so much conflict and unfairness and deprivation and you know i wonder how you make sense personally of the bigger picture yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I've been I've been asked it before, and no, I've never I've never been religious, and I think I probably could be forgiven for 
even if I was religious, to have lost a bit of confidence in, you know, a higher being. And um, I, I think I've kind of, I've went a bit both ways. I've seen the best in people and I've seen the worst. I've seen, I've, I've seen evil where I thought if there was a higher being, there's no way they would allow that. It's not, you know, and I know there's that argument against evil, but for me, no, I've never, I've never been, I've never been religious, and I know my, the, the title of the autobiography is the Pilgrim, and I don't think it's religious and it's spiritual, but I think when you have a, a sense of what's the right thing to do and you're prepared to suffer, I think there's something in that, and that I've not really needed a, a person, a faith, or a book to adhere to. I've just tried to put myself in the position of what would I want to happen if I was in those shoes? You know, what, how would I want to be treated? And I think if that's, if that's, even if that's your only mantra, you, you probably don't need religion or faith to be able to tell you what's the right thing to do. You know, um, you probably got a, you probably got a fair idea. So I've always, I've always used, I've always used that without having any religion or, or spiritual sort of um, addictions. Colin, it's been a joy speaking to you today. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining the Scots Care podcast. Thanks for having me, Marcus. Scots Care for Scots in London in need of support, financial, practical, or emotional. <laughs>